This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. There are communities and people in this field. Their stories, they inspire, and in my case, they often blow my mind. And the story of Atlanta is no different. What happened in Fulton and DeKalb counties, the city of Atlanta, is remarkable. It's one organization that realized, hey, we need to step up. We can do this, and if not us, then who else would it be? Today is August the 27th. It's a Thursday, which means a new episode of the Best Friends Podcast. I'm John Dunn. The organization I'm talking about is Lifeline Animal Project. Founded in 2002, Lifeline grew under the leadership of its founder, Rebecca Gwynn. In 2013, Lifeline took on the task of transforming the ATL into a model for the entire nation. I'm proud to be able to call Rebecca a friend, and it was great to be able to catch up with her, chat about the history of both she and Lifeline, what is happening today, and what they're working on for the future and how Lifeline approaches issues of diversity, equality, and inclusion in one of the most diverse areas in the United States. Okay, so you were one of the first people I think I ever met doing this work. I remember coming to Atlanta, it would have been somewhere around, I think, early 2008, Mm -hmm. and holy smokes, how much have things changed since then. But why don't we uh, start with your background? You were an attorney, right? Well, you know, I remember that visit. I remember that I had the ringtone. I played, uh, my ringtone was Love Shack from the B-52s. And you thought well, that was awesome. And we've been fast friends ever since. So I may have to revive that ringtone pretty soon. Uh, yeah, I practiced law for about a decade before learning about homeless animals and what was happening in my very own community. And I had a realization about the idea that I guess it was at that time is about 80, 85 percent of the animals that entered our shelters here in Atlanta died there. I really couldn't think about anything else and started doing something about it. Okay, so you learn about this issue and you can't think about anything else. Mm-hmm. So where did you start? How did you get started? You know, I really I didn't have a plan. I had an experience at a shelter where I had found a dog and had called animal control and they came and picked the dog up and told me if the dog wasn't going to be reclaimed or wasn't reclaimed in five days that he'd probably be put down and i was i was mortified i was trying to help this animal so i went to the shelter and uh demanded that they give me the dog but the five days weren't up and that was a a friday and that shelter was full there were probably like 400 dogs there and they had group runs so there were you know five six dogs to a run and uh, I never seen anything like it. It was, you know, really within a couple of miles of my home. So I was there on the fourth day and that was a, a Friday and they uh, they wouldn't give me the dog and they said it had to be five days. And I didn't even know what I was going to do with the dog. I just, I didn't want him killed. And so I, I said, well, great, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. And they said, no, it, it's five business days. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll come back on Monday. And they're like, no, we're closed on Monday. You'll have to come back on Tuesday. And when I went back to that shelter on Tuesday, the dog I was trying to save was still there, but the shelter was almost empty. They had euthanized over that three-day period, like um, you know, 350, 400 dogs. It was astonishing. And seeing the shelter full was one thing, but seeing it empty and realizing what had happened. and uh, I I was just uh, mortified and it changed. It it really did change my life. I I just kind of stood there in that empty shelter and said that there, there's got to be something I can do here. So 
one of the very first things that happened to me was I attended, it was actually the second Best Friends No More Homeless Pets conference. And it was in Seattle. And I realized that there were options and there were options that weren't happening in our community. So I, I really, I became obsessed with starting to do something. The very thing, first thing we started was a, a website because most people had never heard of these county shelters, even though every county in the metro area had one. And we started a website and got volunteers to take pictures of the animals and put them on the website uh, just as, a, as an adoption thing. Um, much like PetFinder, but PetFinder hadn't really caught on yet. It was around, but wasn't really known in the Atlanta area. And kind of went from there, started a program for community cats known as Feral Cats back then, a TNR assistance program. That led us to uh, renting a doggy daycare that came complete with kennels uh, and everything and starting a, a boarding facility for dogs that were in rescue groups. That turned out to be a really bad business model, but it gave us a start in a physical facility. Uh, we were going to go broke fixing feral cats, and so we started our own clinic. That brought us into about 2004. 2005, we opened that spay-neuter clinic to the public. And really just kept down that path, kept adding things up until in 2012, we bid on and were awarded contracts to run those shelters, including that one shelter that I had been to that uh, where all the animals were euthanized. So it's, it's taken a minute, but, you know, starting from that, that realization and finding a, someone who could build a database on a website to eventually Lifeline has we take in about 16,000 animals a year, got about 200 employees. We help an additional 24,000 at our clinics and communities and got, got big. That is big. Are you able, do you ever stop and think, uh, like, how the hell did I get here? No, I know how it happened. I think that, you know, I, I was fortunate to find a group of people that felt the same way that I did, which is, you know, we, we need to keep doing the next right thing to make things better for the animals and, and the people in our community, the people that love those animals. So I know, I know how it happened. I do sometimes go, what was I thinking? Because it has turned into a very complex and large undertaking, but I don't regret it for a minute. As you know, I would call Atlanta home. I moved a lot as a kid, but it's probably the place that fits that description. My sister and dad, both still in the area. You know, Atlanta's huge, very much so today. Uh, the home of Coca-Cola, the Olympics. The airport. Most people know the airport. Yeah, right. The airport. <laughs> so for people that maybe don't know Atlanta, give kind of the high level of the city okay. and uh, in particular, the communities you serve. Well, we manage the uh, shelter and provide animal control services in Fulton County. Uh, that is the, it's the largest county in Georgia. And uh, the city of Atlanta is located primarily in Fulton County. There are, I think it's up to 14 other jurisdictions in, Fort, in Fulton County. So as people moved out into the suburbs of the Atlanta area, they formed other cities and they incorporated and that had a big impact on the, the tax base and so on. So Atlanta proper is, is primarily in Fulton County. The rest of Atlanta is in DeKalb County. And we also run the DeKalb County shelter, um, but we only provide animal control services in Fulton County. And in DeKalb, those services are provided by the county. That's um, a total human population of about 1.7 million. 
I think the entire Atlanta metro probably comprised of about 20 counties, probably 6 million people. So we, we have the, the central part of it, which again includes the city of Atlanta. Life-saving in Georgia was not good for a long time. Yeah. Uh, in our 2019 data set, Georgia, dramatic improvement. It was a top five state the, in the top five for the number of animals killed uh, in the one year, 2019, a 30% improvement. And right. I, I'd be honest, I don't think it's an understatement to talk about the impact of Lifeline Animal Project and the work that you've done in Fulton and DeKalb counties, arguably, I think two of the most difficult in the country. Well, thank you. I, I think Lifeline has had obviously a huge impact on Fulton and DeKalb County. We, The Fulton County euthanasia rate when we took over in 2013 was 65%. I mean, it was a 35% save rate. It was dismal. DeKalb was a little better in part because we'd run a community cat shelter neuter return program in DeKalb County before we took over the contract. And now we're both counties have uh, are over 90%. We sustained that in DeKalb for about a year and a half. Uh, Fulton, we've skirted around it between 85 and 90% for many years, and we've been at 90% or above 96% this month. I mean, the whole area has dramatically changed. I know when I started Lifeline, over 100,000 animals a year died in or were euthanized, killed in Metro Atlanta shelters. And that number is down now below 10,000, I think. So it, it's a dramatic improvement. So you have these two counties. And as I said before, I think you're, we're talking about two of the most difficult in the entire country. One of my favorite things about these types of stories is the genesis of how it all happens and comes to be. And yours in particular, <laughs> uh, talk about, I guess, fortuitous so it's 2013, we did start the Fulton contract first. It was an odd thing. We hadn't really planned to do Fulton at all. I, I had toyed with the idea, but it was really, the focus was DeKalb. Lifeline's main facility was located in DeKalb County, and that's where we had our strongest partnership. There was a task force in DeKalb County that ultimately recommended uh, that the whole operation be outsourced, and the county decided they would outsource the sheltering operations. And so we bid on that. They did a request for proposal process and we bid on it and nothing happened. I don't know if they, I don't want to say they forgot about it, but, but no action was taken for almost a year. And in the interim, the Fulton County contract came up and the Fulton shelter, unlike DeKalb, uh, DeKalb was run by the county, but the Fulton shelter had always been outsourced since the seventies. It had been outsourced originally to the Atlanta Humane Society. And then in 2003, uh, another group came in, and then in 2008, another group after that. And the the group in 2008 was had, uh, you know, was on its way out, and they'd had significant problems, and their euthanasia rate was way up. Uh, like I said, they only were saving about 35, 40% of the animals that came in. And this is, you know, Lifeline, we had been working in, in the area for a decade and had just barely managed to move the save rates for either shelter. So we bid on the DeKalb County shelter and then the Fulton County contract came up and nobody bid on it. And the county wasn't really sure what they were going to do. And they were talking about maybe running, trying to run it themselves. And I just felt, you know, there if we really wanted to make a difference, we were going to have to step up. And there were, there really wasn't anybody else that was interested. So we went ahead and, and when the RFP circled back around in Fulton, we 
we bid on that. And uh, that was in December of 2012. And we had the DeKalb bid was still pending. So in January of 2013, we were awarded the Fulton County contract to commence in March of that year. And I want to say a week, two weeks later, I was sitting in the DeKalb County Commissioner meeting and they decided to award us that contract too. So we went from having uh, about 35 employees, a million dollar budget to, I guess with the Fulton contract that put us up to about 90 employees and then DeKalb um, added another 45 or 50. So within a six month span, the organization grew by about 400% and has continued to grow uh, dramatically. So now we're, we're, like I said, up to about 200 employees, but it was just, you know, a handful of us going, huh, I wonder what we're going to do now. So it was a, it was interesting. Tell me about taking over the Fulton County shelter. You said there was a group before you, maybe two groups, but the group before you, I think you used the word um, significant, said significant problems. It was tough. We hired uh, most of the team that was there. We didn't hire the uh, the managers, but all of the animal patrol officers, uh, at least almost all of them, dispatchers, the front desk, you know, all the customer service, we call them client care now, uh, professionals, and then um, the folks in the kennel. And some of those folks have been there a long time, and many of them are still with us. We have animal care specialists who have been working in that shelter since the 90s, animal control officers who've been working in Fulton County since the 80s, and they, they now work for Lifeline and, and are, are happy about it, as far as I can tell. So in a way, we were we were lucky to inherit a pretty good team, and I was lucky to be able to hire some great leadership. Laura Hudson has been the director of that shelter since we took over. It was tough because that staff was, staff was pretty demoralized. So it took someone that they could believe in right away. And and I think Laura was able to accomplish that. The facility itself is horrific. It remains horrific to this day. It was built in 1978. Uh, it was built to hold 80 animals. We often have over 400 there. Uh, we have been very fortunate this year that uh, with COVID, we were able to move many of the animals out, most of them, 80% of our population into foster homes uh, in March. And we've been able to maintain that. We still have probably about 60, 65% of our animal population in foster care. So we've been able to, to really right size the uh, number of animals uh, in this Fulton shelter for for what it's able to to hold. But, you know, when I talked about the group runs at DeKalb, we had even larger group runs at Fulton. Uh, it was literally designed to hold animals for three days when they were to be euthanized. It wasn't even desi- designed to be open to the public at all. I've been to that facility, Rebecca, and you are not over-exaggerating. It is a very grim place. Uh, you said it wasn't designed for the public and you've managed to make it work you know, making the best of really a very bad situation. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think we've had a lot of success there. And the county is on on board to build a new shelter. Uh, COVID has interrupted that process, but it's my understanding that the, the plan is still in place. It maybe uh, will take longer than they had anticipated before this ha- the uh, pandemic. But yeah, it's uh, 
it's a tough environment and it was it was never designed to hold cats and the one of the hardest things for me when we got there was they had housed uh, the feral cats. There's a barn that had been retrofitted to be able to hold dogs. And that's where the dog bike quarantine is. And the previous provider had taken two of those dog runs, their you know, chain link kennels, and filled them with uh, cats. Uh, so there were the male cats on one side and female cats on the other in this, in this uh, quarantine, bike quarantine for dogs. And I don't know how long those cats have been there. And it was it was just horrible. One of the very first things Laura did was implement shelter new to return because there was nothing in the Fulton County ordinance that prohibits free roaming cats. There's nothing that said we need to pick them up. So we implemented shelter new to return almost immediately. But there were cats that we in, were in there and we just couldn't say. They literally had been uh, neglected in the animal shelter to death. And that was... Um, it was just horrible, you know, it was just horrible. And, and and this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a century ago or even a decade ago. It was 2013. So there were things like that that just really shouldn't be happening in any shelter. But if you have the right program, you can turn something around uh, really quickly. And, uh, you know, we never had to do that again. I have no idea if this is right, but my perception at least, and maybe it's because I've only been to Fulton County, but I also got the perception that the other county contract you took on DeKalb, I feel like maybe that was a better situation than Fulton. Yeah, no. Mm -mm. (laughs) You know, that facility was bigger than the Fulton County shelter. Uh, So by some standards, it was nicer, but something about it, Fulton at least has skylights. Uh, Something about that DeKalb shelter was was the most depressing place I think I've ever been. And it has been replaced. We opened the new DeKalb shelter in 2017, but it was just awful. Whereas in Fulton County, we inherited a lot of the staff and DeKalb County would displace a lot of the staff. So there was a lot of resentment. They were still in the building, but they didn't actually have the same jobs. Uh, it was it was not hospitable. I guess that's a word. It was unpleasant coming in at first. It has been a struggle to find the right relationship with the county. It took a long time because it was the first time that they outsourced. So there were there were some challenges there that we didn't have in Fulton. Overall, it was a bigger space, so that that helped. Certainly DeKalb uh, being on track to get a new shelter uh, early on helped. And uh, we were we were able to achieve a greater save rate in DeKalb before we were in Fulton. It has taken a long time to negotiate that relationship with the county. I think we're there now. Uh, there's a new enforcement director that got a really good work, working relationship with. And I think they're on board with the programs that we're working to implement in both counties. And it, it requires their uh, their partnership in DeKalb County, and they're, you know, they're working with us on that. So really, things are going well. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be like working with county governments, and that has been, there's certainly been a learning curve there. And the, the, the two counties are a challenge in different ways. You've heard the saying about there are two things you don't, don't want to see made, and that's laws and sausages. And yeah, local government is uh, is sausage making at its very best. Uh, that's gross. Uh, <laughs> what was it like though to take over a situation where you know these others had come before you? Uh, I imagine with similar proposals, you know, we're going to save lives. This is a big community, uh, a, a lot of pressure, a lot of eyeballs, uh, and these groups mm-hmm. fell way short, fell far short of expectations. 
so as far as the community is concerned, you know, were you, you were just there, it was just more empty promises. Yes. Um, you know, the, I'm, I'm lucky we, we do what we say we were going to do and we, we continue to do the work. Um, we've had success, but, I, but I have had people say, yeah, we were just kind of standing by waiting for you to fail. And I think there are probably a number of advocates and people who have been in the field for a long time here in the Atlanta area who are still somewhat surprised that uh, we're in our eighth year of these contracts. Uh, and it has not, you know, we've certainly made mistakes. Um, we've had some public issues, humiliation sometimes, uh, but we've had a lot of victories as well. And it's so it, I think it is unusual for an organization like ours that has, you know, spay neuter programs and, and some behavior programs to step in and take over these much larger shelter operations and still maintain our own, you know, our own operations as well. So we still have our clinics. We've grown our clinics. So we've added full service veterinary care. I've opened a new community animal center with a large uh, adoption center and full service clinic. And, and, and it's all in service of our, our county contracts, but really our, our community's animals. Speaking of community, community sheltering, you are one of the tier one pilot shelters. I think I got that right for the American Pets Alive Human Animal Support Services model. Uh, we covered this topic in episode 13, I think, Dr. Ellen Jefferson, uh, we talked about this and, and this interesting time where we've seen a different way to look at sheltering, things that we talked about, right? But we've seen it happen. The community supports the work when we ask them, but man, they really stepped up in this pandemic. So it, we start to ask, you know, what could or should the future look like? Human Animal Support Services is really both a We'd like to call it a movement or a theory of animal sheltering that really takes the emphasis off of the shelter and puts it much more into the community, both in terms of finding solutions for animals that are at, at risk for whatever reason, and also looking to the community for finding solutions for those animals once they get into the shelter. So in other words, we're trying to do more in the community to prevent animals from coming in in the first place. And if they do end up coming into our programs, we're looking more to the community for help and helping place those animals. And, you know, across the board, wanting to examine what barriers, how have we alienated our community by the way we are delivering services, particularly in terms of animal control and enforcement? And how can we break down those barriers and have the community participate at a greater level on the same side, what are the barriers that are preventing animals from leaving the shelter quickly? And how can we break those barriers down as well? And how can we increase the community's participation in fostering? In a lot of ways, this was a natural progression for Lifeline. We had a Pets for Life program, which is a program where we're literally going door to door in communities that otherwise don't have access to a lot of resources for pets or people for that matter. And we're providing free veterinary care information, uh, working with that community to be able to care for their pets, care for their neighbor's pets, work with community cats. Uh, what, whatever we can do to help the community with the pets in that community. So we've, we've had that Pets for Life program for a while. 
and we had integrated our field enforcement services with our Pets for Life program for a while as well. So we were getting our field officers to also work with community members to return pets home more quickly, to be less likely to do a citation and an impound, and more likely to work with a pet owner in the community to help them come into compliance if they're out of compliance with a with an ordinance uh, or, or a group of ordinances and really provide them with the whatever tools or resources they need to be able to better care for their pet. So for us it was it was natural to embrace this model that puts much more focus on both sides of the shelter, intake and outcomes, puts much more of that focus into the community. The thing that COVID did for us is it opened people's eyes to the fact that this is really possible. That uh, number one, our sheltering model, which is really not ever sort of the animals that well in the first place. That sheltering model was based on some some ideas and really some some issues that just aren't present. I mean, the whole animal control model was based on rabies control, which is where the word control comes from you know it it was all about impounding rabid dogs and bike quarantine and things like that all of those ideas are obsolete so we're working with a model that no longer has uh, uh, no longer has the same problem i mean we're providing solutions for which the problem has already been eradicated and so we've, we've got this new set of problems which is the shelter itself and animals dying within the shelter so we're looking for a model that really works with the community and gets at some of the causes that that would cause an animal to come into the shelter in the first place. And then we're asking people for help. And so I don't think these are necessarily radical ideas, but what COVID showed us is that the community will step up. We had, again, almost our entire shop, shelter population went out into the community in a matter of a week. And it wasn't just in Atlanta. It was in Austin, it was in Houston, it was in Tucson, it was in Los Angeles, it was you know, in, in Washington, D.C., across the country. There even shelters in Australia emptied out in that March, April timeframe. So it was around the world, the sheltering model overnight became obsolete and we were able to move, uh, move animals into foster homes. And so uh, Haas kind of came about as a number of, of leaders, shelter leaders and national leaders working um, primarily through American Pets Alive, coming together and and realizing, hey, this could work. We could really serve our communities better, our people better, our pets better if we start to capitalize on what we see as momentum and see if we can leverage these changes that we had to make because of the pandemic where we didn't know what was going to happen with our staffs or our shelters or whether or not we'd be able to care for the animals. We, we really didn't know it was going to happen. Could we leverage those changes that the whole, the whole field implemented overnight? Uh, it was just, it's amazing. And can we make this permanent? Can we make this the way sheltering is in the future? So, or animal services. And the key to that is, is the human element and how can we have a bigger tent? And I think, you know, you've been doing this a long time as well, John, that that's always been our the problem that we're trying to solve, uh, we've always been trying to solve it by preaching to the choir. We do that really well. And this is the first time I felt that we've made real progress and not for one of trying, but that we have made real progress having a larger base of support for the animals in our community by engaging the entire community at every level of life saving. The concern 
right now uh, for some is the sustainability of what happened when COVID kicked off. So the shelters are emptied. We have all, you know, the, the community stepping up to foster, but now we're starting to go back to work. Is what happened a fluke? Are we going to be flooded with returns? Uh, interested to know what you're seeing uh, in Atlanta. So we're still seeing a good influx of fosters. It is starting to level out. We had a, a huge increase, like a 300% increase in the number of new fosters coming in uh, in March and April. And we are starting to see that level out, but we still have about 65% of our animal population in foster and the animals are getting adopted from foster. So uh, about 50% of our adoptions are coming out of our foster homes. Now we had to put some technology in place to support that and we are getting that more online. But it's funny that every time since, since I've been in this, in this field, it seems like every time we try to make progress or we, we hit on something, there's always someone out there that's going to say, yeah, well, those people are going to let you down. I mean, it's like the industry just will not believe in the goodness of humanity. And that, I, I don't know what the problem is there, but uh, we have not found that people uh, just simply abandon their responsibilities uh, because they take on more. I mean, there's always going to be a situation where, you know, someone's just not able to continue, but we've not seen animals come back in massive droves or any of those kinds of things. It's continuing to work and people are continuing to step up. Um, we're still here in, in Atlanta and in Georgia very much experiencing the a pandemic. And I think Georgia is now first in the country per capita on the spread of of COVID. So just because we opened up uh, and are going back to normal doesn't mean that anything is normal at all. So we're in the midst of this moment in history. We've got a lot of things happening, but this social justice movement, it's really brought to light for everyone the extreme disparity of uh, daily life for people of color. And I think it's brought this issue to the forefront for our field finally, and not just people of color, but pet owners and low income brackets. You know, on the whole, the, uh, approaching these things, we've just done very poorly over time. And uh, earlier you mentioned speaking to the choir. We're good at that, <laughs> but both Fulton and DeKalb counties are uh, really diverse. I, again, I remember going into the Fulton County shelter and I it hit me very clearly. I was very cognizant, like, oh, that I noticed how many people of color were working there at that shelter. Like, like that, it was that unusual, which is crazy in of itself. But is that intentional? Uh, you know, how important is that as a kind of policy, I guess, for Lifeline Animal Project? It is important to to me as a leader and to our organization that our organization and our teams reflect our communities. DeKalb actually is the, I think it's the second most diverse county in the country. There are uh, I think uh, DeKalb may be about 30, 35% white, and Fulton is about the same. But both counties are, are very diverse, and both counties have a much larger African-American population than, uh, than a lot of other communities. And it's important, it's important to us that, um, that the organization reflect that. And you're right. Historically, animal welfare is a, a white person's endeavor. It's really a white lady's endeavor. But on the other hand, you know, 
city services and municipal services are not. And uh, so we do feel that we reflect our community. We do not reflect our community as much as you move up into the leadership of the organization. So uh, we're about 50-50 at a uh, majority of our employees, African-American and, and white. Um, then uh, our uh, supervisory level is about 70% African-American, but our directors and officers at a staff level are all white. Uh, they're mostly white women, and there are two men thrown in there, maybe three. I don't want to leave any of the guys out, but uh, so is the organization really adherent to diversity, equity, and inclusion? I, I don't know. Probably not. But I think that we are further along than a lot of other similarly situated animal welfare groups. And we, we need to do more. I think as far as our communities concerned, that we are, again, farther along with community programming, uh, being respectful, and trying to meet people where they're at. We could always do better, and we're working to do that. I, I look at it as kind of four different buckets. We have our internal infrastructure. Uh, then we have uh, the the face that we put out there externally. And I think we do internal. I talked about some externally. I, I think we do well with our, our marketing uh, and with our community outreach. And we have our service delivery. And I think in some ways we do well with that. And other ways we need to look at it carefully because animal control is law enforcement. There are certainly laws that are uh, systemically biased. And we look carefully at, at how we're enforcing those laws and should we be working to change them. And then finally, there's our community at large. And when we're talking about the human animal support services model, we are asking our community to behave differently in relationship to us. So we're, we're, we're looking for, just like back in the day, we were trying to convince people to neuter their dogs. Well, you know, there, there are a host of things that we're, we're wanting to change that relationship so it's not just animals being dropped off at the shelter, for example. We are asking people to do something different. And it's something that we're committed to. Our leadership team is doing a workshop later this week with a group called Diversity Science, where we really start to take a hard look internally. Our board is working on creating a diversity, equity, and inclusion subcommittee of our governance committee to, to ensure that we're doing everything we can do to, to be fully uh, representative and not just to include people of color but to make sure that we are hearing and incorporating those marginalized voices. It's, um, you know, it starts uh, by looking at yourself. And so we're, we're starting on that journey. I don't want to sell short the progress that this organization has made, but I also know that we, you know, we need to recognize who I am as a, a white person and a person of privilege that, that had the opportunity to go to law school and become a lawyer and chuck it all and volunteer and become, you know, start an animal welfare group and realize the kind of opportunity that I've had that a lot of people do not and um, that wouldn't, would not accrue to a, a, even, even a number of our employees. And the other thing is that we, you know, we operate in Atlanta, we operate in the South, and Atlanta is uh, unique, I think, both in its uh, diversity and, and sometimes singular in its racism. And our staff is exposed to that. I, um, we had an incident recently, and I noticed some posting on Facebook, and there was something that happened that our, our, our staff person admittedly could have handled better. 
um, but the poster called him belligerent, and I know that that is probably not true. He's over six feet tall, and he's African-American, but not belligerent, and you know, I saw in that something that troubled me, and I went to my practice manager for our clinic, who's also African-American, and I, I, I said, you know, I think I've ignored this for a long time, but I think I've seen it, that, that people come in here and make really derogatory remarks to you because you're black. And she started crying, and <laughs> it broke my heart. It broke my heart. Um, and she said, every day, every day. And she's the manager, and she said people come in and demand to speak to the manager, and she'll come out. And it's as if they say, no, I meant the white manager. So, you know, I realize that we need to do more as an organization. Um, I don't know how we're going to change the society, but it, it really, really troubles me that the Black people that work for Lifeline and everywhere have put up with this. And I, I'd really like it to stop. And I think it, it was meaningful to her that, you know, we recognized that it was happening and neither one of us had a solution for it. But it's, uh, you know, these are folks coming in a lot of times with our clinics. This is like, you know, they're getting their cat spayed or neutered and vaccinated and, you know, for 25 bucks or for free or whatever. And they're, they're it's astonishing to me that people can, can and do act that way. Uh, with alarming regularity, but she had had stories of being called the N-word, uh, disrespected, spit on, and that's, I don't, I don't know that any of us really realize what it's like, uh, and it's, it's something we need to change. One of the discussions we've been having amongst the podcast team in this regard is around adoptions, right? So you can, as an organization, implement progressive life-saving programs, right? Open adoptions, but it really is just a policy. It's just a way we approach it. It doesn't mean that we're still not being driven, I guess uh, you could say by our internal biases. Um, you know, these things that we don't even realize we're doing. So we say we have open adoptions, but are we truly being open? And again, I, big question. And I I don't know if you're doing anything to combat that or recognize that, but anything in that realm that you have learned that you think others could use? Well, um, you know, we, we adopted the Adopters Welcome platform uh, 2014, 2015. Um, there was a manual and did the training. And we realized we need to do all that training again. So it's continuing to train folks and to work with our teams to uncover bias. I think it, it helps to diversify your workforce and, you know, not fill it with all the same kind of person. It is something we have to stay mindful of. we we'll one day soon roll out some um, core values uh, and, and that's part of it. Kindness, compassion, respect. Those are the things that we have preached in this industry forever and have neglected to practice, I think. And so it, it does call for that, that self-reflection. It's tough. I think the field itself kind of lends itself to this us or them thing. And, you know, we've also there are people that, you know, they're, they're drawn to animals because of certain things and may be adverse to interpersonal skills. I think the thing that's always been interesting to me about this field, John, is that I've always felt that whatever it is that 
is your issue. Maybe you procrastinate. Maybe you're a workaholic. Maybe you love too much. Maybe you love too little. You know, maybe you have a drinking problem. Who knows? Whatever, whatever your personal battle is, this field will cause you to confront it and overcome it, or you will leave. You know, if you're if you're going to stay in animal welfare, if you're going to stay in this profession, you have to address whatever it is within yourself. And that's been true for me. That's been true for our, our teams. And I think that that is true for our industry, that this is a demon that we have, that systemic racism is deep in our industry as well, and bias and a lack of compassion for each other when we're being so compassionate about the animals in our care. I've always been astonished at how this is a, a, a field that's, that literally seems to, to eat its young, the way different factions of our, our industry are attack each other. And, you know, it's something that we're going to have to come to terms with just on an individual level and I think as a, in the field as well. I think all of us have had those aha moments. I suppose, and still do. I it happens to me all the time where I catch myself in that moment of bias. And once you see them, it can really shift the way you approach things. You talked about being white lady attorney, and you had this privilege to become attorney and then pack it in and, and go rescue animals. Was there an aha moment for you where you realized that the pet ownership or, you know, this is different than I thought? Years ago, we started a thing. We're not able to do it right now because of COVID, but it's it's called health, our Healthy Pets events. And I got a call from a, um, a donor who wanted to give us $15,000, which is a good amount of money, and wanted us to do a free vaccination event to provide free uh, vaccinations for pets, uh, first come, first serve, how, however many would come. The only catch was she wanted us to do it in 10 days, and we'd never done an event like that. And... Uh, you know, didn't even really advertise. We did some flyers in the neighborhood. We were ready to start the event at 10 o'clock. We had enough supplies to treat 500 pets. People started lining up at seven o'clock. Um, by 9.30, we had, you know, uh, we didn't know how many people we had in line, but the police came to help direct traffic. There were so many people. We started at 10 o'clock and we realized there were so many people in line we started handing out tickets, and by 10:30 they were gone. Basically, in 30 minutes, had filled that event with, you know, really very little advance notice. And we were like, "Oh my goodness, this is something that people really need." And it is amazing to me. People will come from all over. Would intentionally go to communities that are more or less uh, around or near the poverty level. So the majority of the, the folks that attending are African-American and, and more than likely, although not necessarily, but more than likely, it may be the only way that they're going to be able to get vaccinations for their pet. And those events have grown that we use, uh, we do now uh, about a thousand pets at each event, but it used to be when we started out. People would come and they would stand in line. They'd start at seven o'clock. They would stand in line for hours and hours, regardless of the weather, regardless of what was happening with their pets. And they would be, you know, on clothes lines or, you know, uh, computer cords seem to be a popular to, um, for, for leashes and collars. And we'd do free vaccinations, free microchips, free food. And we'd do free hot dogs for the humans and uh, free leashes and collars. And people would stand in line for hours. They were happy to do that. They were appreciative. Their pets were well-behaved. My own animals were not 
participate in an event like this. And it was really amazing to me what people were willing to do to get uh, help for their animals. And, it, and it's just, it's just, it was just vaccinations, you know, it's vaccinations and a gallon Ziploc of dog food. And it made me realize that it, it's not a lack of responsibility, it's a lack of resources. And to the extent that we could help provide those resources, pets would not end up in shelters. And so it's, um, but, but seeing that, you know, three or 400 people in line with their dogs, mostly, it's amazing. And it lets you know that people really do care. They want to do the best thing. And we've been going about it kind of wrong for a long time, I think. That's Rebecca Gwynn, truly one of my heroes. I will never understand how they were able to do what they've done. Lifeline taking on both of those contracts at essentially the same time and to be so successful with what seemed like an awful lot stacked against them. And, you know, it's not just maintain it, but they've continued to increase their save rates. It really is beyond comprehension and a real testament to Rebecca and the entire Lifeline Animal Project team. Head to bestfriends.org podcast. You can learn more about Lifeline. We've put up some links on the website, bestfriends.org podcast. The producers of this podcast are Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.